after I had a baby, I tried running. It felt terrible in my body because I don't actually have a lot of rest. And so my body actually sent me a lot of signals to say running, not for you right now. (laughs) And I think that we're told by culture in general, that that's a willpower issue. And we have to kind of overcome that intellectually. But in fact, many of us are getting signals from our body that says, hey, whoa, I am Cheryl Witten, and this is The Aromatherapist, where we discover the superpower of plants. One of the biggest problems in aromatherapy is conflicting information and crazy wild claims. All you have to do is search essential oils on the internet, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So when you're looking for information, how do you know who to trust, and how do you know what's right? Well, that's the reason I created this podcast, and a course called Science of Aromatherapy. The Science of Aromatherapy course takes you through aromatherapy as a healing art and the history and modern use of essential oils. You'll learn the basics of aromatherapy, the science and chemistry of essential oils, contraindications and safety considerations, and clinical and personal applications. In this course, I take you through everything from how aromatherapy affects epilepsy and bleeding disorders to drug interactions, allergies and sensitivities, and to use in pregnancy and breastfeeding, and even with children. We covered the main modes of application and profiles of the 10 most popular essential oils. By the end of the course, you'll understand the most common contraindications and safety guidelines, how to use essential oils, how to build a protocol, and how to choose, cross-reference, and eliminate essential oils, as well as how to formulate, blend, and dilute essential oils, and so much more. So why should you learn from me? Well, I'm a clinical aromatherapist and I've been working with essential oils for around 20 years. I've trained with some of the world's renowned botanists and aromatherapy experts, and I teach people all over the world about aromatherapy. I also happen to be a professional health writer and have published peer-reviewed research work in aromatherapy. It's no longer necessary to be confused about aromatherapy. Let me guide you to clarity. Visit livelovelemon.com forward slash science dash course to enroll. My guest today is Janice Eisenman, founder of My Body Couture. She helps people feel better in their body. And like most business owners today, she sees clients online and in person, and her specialty is helping people rid themselves of pain. She's highly certified in both fitness and nutrition modalities and has been quoted as a lifestyle expert in Reader's Digest, Prevention, and Women's Health. But she's not just a textbook of knowledge with a wall full of certifications. She's a very real person who has lived through her own lifestyle and body challenges. In her one-to-one sessions, she therefore provides practical solutions for her clients, taking the time to get to know their lifestyle challenges and provide reasonable solutions with her lively personality and approachable manner. She has certifications in critical alignment in yoga therapy, rainbow kids yoga, Stott Pilates, TRX suspension training, Yamana body rolling, and yin yoga. She calls herself a movement specialist and focuses on what she calls body sustainability. And so our conversation today was really around how traditional fitness categories just are not enough and how we can feel better in our body by shifting our focus to sustainability instead. So we really dive into just the real problem of the hustle and grind kind of attitude that's in fitness, the approach that most of us take in treating fitness like we're always 20 instead of adapting to where we are in our life and how our body feels and the conditions we're in and the stress of our life and 
taking the same approach to food. And so we have a real one extreme to the other kind of all or nothing approach in our society. And so we really talk about the importance of getting beyond that, getting more into holistic approach to fitness and food and really paying attention to our own bodies and respecting and honoring where we are. We also talk about the impact of culture and society on how we look at fitness and how we look at our bodies and how and what we're teaching young girls. And so this conversation was so wonderful and fascinating and something I'm also passionate about. And I learned lots from Janice. So my friends, Janice Eisenman. Hi, Janice. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So before we jump in, can you uh, tell us where you're from and how you started working in holistic health? Yes, I live in Calgary. And I started working in holistic health because many years ago, I went to the U of A in Edmonton. And when I grew up, I was not athletic. There was like zero athleticism. And I went through kind of typical small town, high school athletics programs with a real focus on team sports. So we were doing volleyball and basketball and I sucked at all of them and (laughs) still do. (laughs) And So when I went to university, I discovered that I actually really liked running and I signed up for a course through the Canadian retailer called the running room and the university that I attended has a river valley. So I was running up and down a lot of hills and because I was from that non-athletic background, my body just had no ability to actually tolerate that level of work. And I didn't know that at the time. What I knew was that I ended up with a painful knee condition called runner's knee. So if you're not familiar with that, basically sitting is painful. Walking up and down stairs is painful. Anything where your knee is in a bent position is painful. So years later, the University of Calgary discovered that runner's knee is actually a hip imbalance. Hmm. Well, I didn't know that at the time. And I went off to get help from a number of different practitioners. So I went to sports medicine doctors and massage therapists and acupuncturists. I went to a rolfer, you name it, I did it. And those in my view today are all great disciplines, but none of them actually solved the underlying problem. And I know why now today, but back in those days, I had no idea. So I was getting temporary pain relief then I would go out for another run in the river valley and my knee would hurt again. And it was, so it was really frustrating because I felt like for the first time in my life, I had discovered this, you know, passionate endeavor and I was really blocked from being able to move forward with it. So in a nutshell, I then spent the next 15 years in this passionate cycle of trying to discover more about my body. And I went into food and I went into aromatherapy and I went into, you know, I dabbled in mm-hmm. kind of a lot of the holistic areas, including holistic exercise. And so I really created a job for myself based on the melding of different holistic disciplines and became what I now call a movement specialist, where I apply those holistic principles to exercise, which often really isn't a very holistic practice. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think we can we can all relate to that. I mean there's there's so many extremes and but I I appreciate what you're saying about just trying to understand your own body and um look at all health in different ways because I, a lot of people I talk to have a very similar story to that where they've gone into something because they're trying to find more answers for themselves and I'm the same. So 
you talk about body sustainability and I love this language. Can you explain basically what this body sustainability means? Yes. So when we talk about fitness, we always use the words cardio, strength, and flexibility. And I just told you a story about my own body where my cardio system would have technically been working. So that would be seen in our culture as good exercise. We need that. We need good cardio. But my body was not in a scenario where it was actually able to sustain that exercise. In fact, I couldn't even sustain walking up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. So again, this was a concept that entered my life, you know, 15 years after this incident. But body sustainability is where we actually have the base of the pyramid, where we don't have pain, we don't have aches, we don't have barriers to physical activity. Now, of course, some people have legitimate lifetime barriers to physical activity, Mm -hmm. but within the realm of we're not standing up from our desk and hurting. We're not waking up in the morning and saying, oh, my joints are so stiff. So body sustainability is recognizing that we're alive for an average of 80 something years and being in a position where we can operate and do the things we want to in our life. And then on top of that, if we want to add cardio strength or flexibility, we can, but having that option to move ahead with activities of our own choice, as opposed to being held back by the concept of aging or being in chronic pain. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. I when I hear you talking about it to me, it, I relate to it like building a, a a system for yourself that helps your body last over all the years and things that we try to do rather than like like I know for myself, exercise is like a form of like torture almost, you know, <laughs> I am like aggressively yeah. trying to get my body to do something I want it to do. Yeah. So I love that that approach to like okay, let's just pull that back a little bit and look at how how we can be build a system for it. When I talk to most of my clients and, you know, I've had clients that have literally competed in the Olympics. So there are some very high level goals that people have with the average person by far and away, you know, 75% of people say to me, I want to play with grandchildren either now or in the future. I want to be able to go for a walk. I want to be able to travel and to get off an airplane and not feel like I'm in pain. I want to be able to, you know, I've had women say, I want to be able to wear high heel shoes. Mm -hmm. These aren't goals. Like I want to crush, you know, the squat rack and lift 250 pounds. These are lifestyle goals of, I want to live a life where I engage in my passions. And that's what body sustainability is to me. It is taking the fitness piece out of the equation and being able to move your body in ways that bring us joy and satisfaction in our life. So think back to being a child when you're 10 We don't set those goals of, I really want to run a marathon and I want it to be a sub four hour marathon. Kids (laughs) go out to the playground and they just move their body. They play with their friends. They climb up and down. They have fun. The reality is that's what most adults actually really are missing. And so we, we kind of force this exercise box on people, go to the gym, do a yoga class. It needs to be 60 minutes. You got to burn calories. You have to get your intensity up. That doesn't actually work for most people because if it did, we wouldn't kind of have to constantly be marketing and selling this concept and most people would actually go to the gym. So most people actually want body sustainability, but they don't even know that that is a category or something that exists and they certainly don't know how to get it. 
Yeah. And you you talked about your running injury. I'm a runner. I run five to six days a week and I run 5K every day minimum. And because I just love how I feel when I run, but I also have an autoimmune thyroid disease and I have a hormone balance. And about two years ago, I actually collapsed from my autoimmune disease. Yeah. And overtraining was a really big instigator in that. And I was training for a marathon and, you know, I just thought I could do that. And so I've talked to lots of doctors about this and about physical stress in the immune system. And, and specifically in my case, that was, that was it. That was the thing that was too much. But from a fitness perspective, can you talk about how overtraining or maybe if the wrong type of training, how does that affect the body? I think you just gave a wonderful example. So if we were just to look on Instagram right now, we could scroll through some fitness pages. And what we're going to see is that we set goals that constantly advance the body. They constantly push and strain the body in ways that we want to lift more. We want to run faster. We want to run further. We want to be able to do more flexible poses in yoga. And it's seen as this kind of endless pursuit where we could always get better. And none of that actually takes into account anything else that's going on in your life or your body. So I talk to my clients and my classes all the time about positive stress versus negative stress. Mm -hmm. So if we have, and we never ever culturally talk about exercise as negative stress, but it in fact can be. So before I had a baby, I ran and it felt good on my body. After I had a baby, I tried running. It felt terrible in my body. I am a single parent. And so it has been quite demanding and taxing on me because I don't actually have a lot of rest. And so my body actually sent me a lot of signals to say running, not for you right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that we're told by culture in general, that that's a willpower issue. We have to engage in positive self-talk and we have to set goals and we have to kind of overcome that intellectually. But in fact, many of us are getting signals from our body that says, Hey, whoa. So aging, autoimmune diseases, becoming a parent, caregiving for parents, stressful jobs, stressful marriages, financial stress, nutritional stress, actually even temperature can stress us. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, You and I both live in Alberta where it's not at the current moment when we're recording this, but we will get that minus 30 weather snap, minus 20 weather snap. That's going to be stressful to the human body. And so engaging in programming that is taxing the body is going to be interpreted by a stressed out system as negative stress. So the goal of exercise should ideally be positive stress. So when I was 21 and a student, which means I was attending classes for 15 hours a week, and that was my whole life, Mm -hmm. I could run. As a business owner and a mother, I put in between my house and my my office, I mean, that's 50% of my waking hours at work and 50% cleaning the house and parenting. And I don't actually have a lot of personal time and space where I'm really in that space of relaxation. We've flipped the equation for me where maybe if I'm lucky, I have 15 hours of actual downtime in a week. So my system says, whoa, running is a really terrible idea. That's negative stress. So the goal of exercise for me at this point in my life, and this is very likely to change, 
is going to be to give myself some positive stress. So I do activities like yin yoga, where I can feel the stretch, but it's gentle and it's sustainable and it helps my musculature stay in condition to take body stress, but where I'm not actually taxing my system. So we have to actually look at it holistically before we're taking on a plan and especially a kind of new year's plan. Mm -hmm. Best to not look at a plan from the internet because we have to really take into account the whole system. Overtraining to you might not be overtraining to me. Mm -hmm. You have an autoimmune disorder. Overtraining to me as a mother and a business owner might not be the same as overtraining to a 25 year old male who's a student. And so the word overtraining, I think it's kind of confusing because we're like, what is that? But the reality is it's going to be very different for different people at different phases of life. It's different for men versus women. It's different based on your hormonal phase of life. It's different depending on what other intakes you have that are interpreted by your body as stress. Yeah. And for me, I, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by athletes and I'm fascinated by the way, especially elite athletes who are able to get their body into such shape to do what seemingly is incredible things. But when I was trying to do the marathon, I mean, I wasn't feeling good. Now I look back on it and it's like, you know, I needed help, but I was trying to push myself just to see if I could do it and if I could feel better, which obviously didn't work. And you talked about this already, about that pushing harder and kind of grinding it out attitude that's out there. And, you know, we see it all the time on on social media about never miss a Monday or whatever it is, which great, that works for you. But at the same time, it just feels like so much pressure. And I think leads to this, you know, overwhelm before you even start. So how do we become mindful? more mindful about fitness and how do we move out of that, you know, all or nothing extreme and shift towards sustainability? Well, I think we do have an all or nothing because less than 15% of people actually go to the gym. So we know already that the vast majority of people just have rejected the whole thing wholesale. Mm -hmm. Forget it, not doing it. And it's just not working. I had a an awareness recently that part of the genesis of this is that there really was no fitness culture at all until the 1980s. So if you had tried to run a marathon in 1974, I think as a female, you probably wouldn't even have been allowed to. And people would have looked at you very strangely if you ran up the street, like first check behind you to see who who is following you. And second, (laughs) you know, what is she doing and why? And there were there was no such thing as aerobics. It would have been almost impossible to find a yoga class. Um, until the 1990s, there was actually only two yoga studios in all of Toronto, for example, etc. So the genesis of kind of all of this really started in the 1980s. And when we kind of combine what was happening culturally, Nike's Just Do It campaign was loud and clear, and it was really attached to the whole fitness movement. So as long as there ever has been a fitness movement, it has always been attached to just do it, just grind it out, rise and grind. And so divorcing ourselves from that is really hard because those two grew up together. They're one and the same. So how do we do it? It's a practice. It's not an idea. It's actually a practice. And it's a huge practice of awareness. We have to be in a place like a literal physical space where we're usually not looking at other people. Now that 
for a lot of people is a huge relief. But the second we're in a gym, there is an energy in the gym of competition. There's mirrors, there's music to pump you up and you're automatically kind of in that just do it space. And again, I don't think this is all bad. I think there's a phase of life and a time of life. Mm -hmm. And some of those motivational memes really are what people need to get going. But you and I are talking from the framework of we're already healthy and active and have both had experiences where we, you know, actually they've both been with running where we go and we do that and our body is sending us those clear signals that say, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're more tired when we, when we stop than when we started. And that's your body saying, whoa. And then our narrative is, well, you know, you've just got to push through it. You've just got to try more, do more. So I think that we probably need to spend, you know, get a yoga mat and lay down and doesn't matter if you're doing a push-up or a sit-up or a yoga posture, whatever it is, stop the exercise. This is actually how I teach my clients. We do one exercise. We stop. We discuss. What do you feel in your body? What feels different? If nothing feels different in a positive way, we're not ever going to do that exercise again because Mm. it's a waste everybody's time. I actually, right before I talked to you, I had a client, we did, you know, it was a 10 minute exercise on one side of her body. We finished. She's like, I literally do not feel the difference. I couldn't see one. She couldn't feel one. I'm like, well, we're not going to do side two. That was not an <laughs> investment of time. But I also dig into and help people dig into, okay, you know, can you explain what you feel in your body? Do you feel heat? Do you feel a temperature shift? Do you feel length? Where is it? What do you feel? And So in an hour session, we're probably spending a collective 10 minutes doing awareness exercises because once we have that, we can take that to every movement we do, but we're not just taking that programming from a book and talking ourselves through it. And so then those body changes, we're all going to have days when we wake up and we're tired. Okay. Maybe we're not going to push as hard that day. We all have days where we wake up and you know, when we get those minus 20 days, it's super dry outside. That's hard on a lot of people's bones and joints. Maybe mm-hmm. that's not the day to go to the gym and push the weights. Maybe you just want to do something gentler, but we have to develop that underlying body awareness. And that is a practice. So generally that's going to be a practice that you have to do every day. There's a whole bunch of different ways to do it, but I do it through exercise. I do it through every single exercise. Stop. And I tell people whisper it out loud if you want to. Say it in your head if you want to, but don't skip that part. We have to actually have that dialogue, put words to the experience of your body. And I don't think I've ever had a client who's ever done that before. So this isn't something that we're teaching people to do at the gym. It's not something we're taught to do in high school. (laughs) No, absolutely not. But I love that about just tuning into your own body and being aware of what you need. Maybe it literally is stretching today not feeling like you're failing. And that's where the social media culture is really toxic because mm-hmm. it sets us up for, well, here's a 30 day program and 30 day programs can be done by robots. Yeah. <laughs> Very easily robots without other stress factors, robots without, you know, I share this with my clients all the time, but we've got stress, we've got weather, we've got what we ate the day before we've got hormones, we've got external factors going on in our lives, such as work, children, finances, your home environment, etc. I mean, we could list 25 factors and every single one of those is going to have some impact on you. Some of them are going to be bigger than others, but 
we have to actually bring that into the equation and not be so focused on, well, my chart says I need to do 30 burpees today. And again, I think that's stuff that honestly we can get away with when we're 22, mm-hmm. but when we're 42 or 52 or 62, we need to put ourselves into that equation because we just can't kind of continuously follow this flow chart just because it exists. I'm quickly interrupting this episode to tell you about one of my favorite essential oil companies, Mountain Rose Herbs. So one of the questions I get asked the most is which brand do I recommend and which brand do I use in my clinic? And if you've been listening for a while or if you're new here, you will know or you will soon learn that I am extremely picky about the essential oils that I use in my clinic and the essential oils that I recommend other people use. And Mountain Rose Herbs is one of the brands that I have personally vetted and that I personally recommend. Mountain Rose Herbs essential oils are USDA organic, they are non-GMO and ethically harvest, and they are high quality. These are authentic essential oils that are gonna get you results. They are also fair trade certified and they are sustainable with a zero waste program. This is very important to me and I know this is important to you as well. And so right now, if you're looking to get some essential oils, you can get 10% off Mountain Rose Herbs essential oils. Visit mountainroseherbs.com and use code AROMAPOD10 to get 10% off essential oils. And now back to our episode. So then what about food? Because, you know, as you were saying, we're really, this the culture on, is still a little bit off and especially around diet, uh, it's very extreme. And so we, <laughs> you know, we're either eating a generally terrible diet that's like fast foods and packaged foods and then we're, and sugar and industrial oils and then we start to feel gross. And then we flop to, okay, now we're in this terrible phase of like, oh my gosh, now we got to restrict all the food and we got to run till our legs fall off. How do we get out of that? Because that is not sustainable at all. And that is not health. So how do we shift out of that? How do we shift how we approach food into something that's more sustainable eating? That's a great question. So I, I love how you put that because it's, it's just the most truthiest truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we do as more than, more than fitness. I absolutely agree that in diet and dietary practice, we have these extremes and often they're driven by other people. So mm. the keto diet was one that you know, I do health coaching with people and health coaching is a discipline of nutrition where we, again, we take people's holistic scenarios into play. So if somebody's going through a divorce, eating broccoli isn't going to make them happy and healthy. They have a mm. high stress scenario and it's not just all about the food, but we're also in that model. We're trying to pull people out of these extreme scenarios and make it again, sustainable. So the most frustrating years and I've done I've done health coaching for I think 14 years. So the mm. most frustrating singular year of health coaching was the year that keto crested over top of North America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I basically just was like, okay, put down the gauntlet. I can't fight this because what would happen is people go to the office and somebody's lost weight and then everybody gathers around and oh, what did you do? Oh, I just didn't eat another carb ever again. And it's a lifestyle. And I laughed because at the beginning of COVID, I was at the grocery store and looked at the aisles and I'm like, so much for keto. The rice is all gone. The oatmeal's Mm -hmm. all gone. The beans are all gone. (laughs) 
the corn's all gone in the frozen food aisle and people just gravitated towards those carbs. So I think number one, we have to get rid of this idea that dietary shifts are a lifestyle. That word at this point is like, it's got to go. So we have substituted, no one wants to be on a diet. Everybody knows diets don't work, but now we use lifestyle plans and we sell these extreme packages as lifestyle. The reality is that we're not going to go to birthday parties and we're not going to go to celebrations and not eat the cake and not have a drink for the next 42 years. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a thing. So but we convince ourselves that this is our new lifestyle. This idea is one that nobody likes to do. We all like 21 day fixes and instant results, but the path to success is small changes. So habit research shows that if we make one change, you're 85% likely to be able to sustain, maintain, and be successful with that change. The second is two changes, that drops to 15%. So one change is going to be I'm going to make sure that I drink water throughout Mm -hmm. the day. That's kind of boring. And you're not going to go to the office and have people gather around you and say, oh my God, what did you do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there's a likelihood that for two weeks, if you just focus on that one small change, that you're going to succeed. And then you can add another change. That's what we actually want to do. We want to baby step our way through this where we take on four little changes and we want to take it on like a personal body science experiment. So if you want to cut out sugar, that's the only thing you should cut out. Eat bread, continue with other carbs and just cut out sugar and try that for two weeks. Does that do anything for your body? Do you get cravings for other things? What happens? But stop with just that one change. So taking on these huge pieces, these huge diets means that we can't even strand out what's effective. We have no idea. And then it becomes really, really unsustainable. So we're on this quote unquote lifestyle plan that we don't even know which piece of it is effective. So if you know that your body has a certain tolerance for sugar or that there are certain, you know, like I, I, this is probably about 15 years ago. I, I did a month where I cut out sugar and I was shocked at what sugar's in. I mean, sugar is in barbecue sauce, like crazy. Oh, yeah. Sugar <laughs> is in salad dressing, which I'm like, what? um, sugar's in lots of things. So I cut it out, felt way better, but there's a few things that have sugar in them that to me that are so worthwhile. Chocolate has sugar in it. Not cutting out chocolate. <laughs> so I, but I don't care about store-bought salad dressing with sugar in it. Right. So that's the other thing is that when we do those small changes, we can really figure out the nuts and bolts of what actually matters to us. You know, I don't, I don't need to claim that I'm never going to eat sugar again. I am going to eat sugar again, but I know exactly where the sugar that I care about is versus the sugar that I, I mean, there's sugar in all kinds of things that you're not even aware that there's sugar in. And I don't care about those sugars. Like give me something that's actually quality. So it's really slow, sustainable changes and eating more fruits and vegetables. Okay. So then for the person who's just completely overwhelmed, how do we start changing? What's the first thing you should do if you are completely overwhelmed? So generally speaking, there's such a strong, strong focus on results And what we actually need to be focused on is the process itself. So moving away from the scale and, you know, I'm going to use the example of a yoga posture. Let's move away from what that posture looks like and move towards what it feels like. Let's move away from what the scale says and what we feel like. There are scenarios and I've been in some of them where my best advice is throw away the damn scale. 
let's get into your body. Let's get into the sensations of your body. So whether we've plateaued or we're overwhelmed and we need to start, I'm going to give you opposite advice from what you get from most health practitioners, which is don't set goals. The, the only goal is how do you feel? Do you have energy when you wake up? Do you have energy in the afternoon? At nighttime, are you able to go to sleep or are you kind of having insomnia? So start to actually get into the way that your body feels because this is kind of a hippie response, but all the answers are inside your body. And so the truth is if you're waking up and you do not feel refreshed, something has gone wrong in that sleep cycle. If you need six cups of coffee to get going or to sustain your day, well, we just don't have that vitality in the body. So let's, you know, start there. So let's amp up your fruits and vegetables. That's my answer to like everything nutritionally. (laughs) Um, If you're in the middle of the afternoon, you're like, I can't make it through the day. Your body is sending a signal. This is not the stress load on your body and the balance of your body is not right. So I think those plateaus are frustrating partly because we're focused on continuous progress. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of scenarios, progress is smaller than what we actually give it credit for. So we need to focus on the practice of the action and not the outcome. Yeah, I love that. What do you think we should be teaching our kids differently? Because our kids, I have teenagers and they are entrenched in social media and media culture. So how do we teach them about body sustainability and just how to approach their own bodies and fitness? So this is probably for slightly younger kids, but I have a 10 year old. And one thing I noticed when I first was on the birthday party circuit, if you will, is that there's lots of conversations that parents have about how important sports are for kids. And it would be almost rare to find a parent who doesn't enroll their child or attempt to enroll their child in at least one sporting endeavor because we have a sense of how important it is. But I started going to birthday parties that were, you know, at trampoline parks or Nerf gun parties or things like that. And what I really noticed was that the kids would be doing the active activity and the parents are sitting on the sidelines. Mm. And I was like, okay, this is a disconnect that we have in our culture because we have phys ed classes, a lot of which are focused on team sports. We enroll our kids in sports because we think it's really important. But we as parents often forget that in a very short window of time, as you can probably attest if you have teenagers, I mean, it goes like that. Mm-hmm. And then you've got independent young adults or adults. And we have forgotten completely to teach them how to have sustainability and body maintenance as young adults and as adults, which frankly is 60 years of their life. So Mm -hmm. as parents, we're enrolling them in sports programs and kind of these formalized programs for 15 years, but we forget about the next 60. So even as a parent of teenagers, but certainly if you have kids that are younger, do family-based activity programs. It can be yoga. It can be going for bike rides with the kids. It can be try to actually be active with your kids because that models a lifetime sustainability program. Social media, is, you know, that's a, that's a hard power to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
we have to start having conversations, especially with young females, about how our body feels and not about how our body looks and about aligning those two things. Because, you know, I saw a social media post, and this was from an adult today who asked a question about how to generate more body confidence. She has always hated how she looks. And that's a conversation about let's not actually engage in comparative conversations. Mm-hmm. So with teenager and again I would I would overemphasize this on girls is that's a natural thing that the human brain does we look at a picture of someone we compare so actively have conversations with teenagers about what do we do when we end up in conversations with our friends where we're comparing our bodies to others and even worse where we're criticizing other people's bodies because when we get into that self-criticism mode then we criticize others and then we hear those criticisms and then we think that other people are criticizing us. So for that, I teach my clients a self-compassion practice. So where we learn to, I've heard different words put to this, but basically compassion is what a mother has for a crying baby. Mm. We say kind words, we comfort. And so by teaching and integrating a self-compassion practice, we can actually learn to accept our bodies and not even have those negative thoughts in the first place. So I would actively encourage parents to, you know, there's resources and instructors on the internet who teach self-compassion and it's a simple practice, but it, it would lead to a lifetime skill set in how to actually talk to ourselves in a way that allows our body to actually be the driver of the information and not social media or criticism. Mm-hmm. And I think self-compassion also leads to awareness, which it does. is... I think that if we have, I mean, the step one of self-compassion is always to do a body scan. So we have to really be in our own body. If we can actually be in the experience of our own body, we're not in the experience of comparing, criticizing, wanting, desiring, and everything in our culture is actually set up to be the opposite. And so that's the challenge because actually, again, just to talk about New Year's resolutions, the whole sell by marketers is to bring up pain points to fundamentally make you feel ashamed Mm-hmm. Or to trigger that so that you take action and you buy a program. And so we have a long history just in a consumer culture of, well, body hair is bad. That sells us razors. Mm-hmm. Wrinkles are bad. That sells us Botox. Body shape mm-hmm. diversions are bad. So then we buy Spanx. So everything really in our consumer culture is driven by some kind of like especially for females, body shaming and body flaws. And it isn't until we can kind of go back into, okay, well, how does my body feel? Where is that information in my body? What is my body actually telling me? That we then suddenly don't care. But that's a really hard thing to believe even when you're a teenager. But it really is a life scale. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to ever want to, you know, I do self-compassion practice every day and I still wear lipstick. But it's not because I'm like, oh, my lips are so thin. I need to, you know, cover this up. (laughs) It's because I can then really enjoy the experience of enhancing a feature of my body. And I'm doing it for a positive reason, not because I feel shame or that something is needs to be different. 
Yeah. And that's, that's a good, good way to look at it too. I hope that someday that soon that that shifts. I think we have, we're having a slow. I think there's some amazing Instagrammers out there who have very strong voices and huge followings and are, have really changed the narrative, especially for females, you know, they're getting their cellulite out there. Yeah. (laughs) Getting their body lumps out there and trying to normalize what it is to be female, especially females who have had the experience of having children where there's stretch marks and there's, you know, it's not all smooth and taut and airbrushed. But I think that that is coming from the Instagram world and marketers are still catching up and there's, there's work to be done. But I think that there are also are skill sets and tools out there to help us overcome that. And that's where really like I just am such a huge believer in, in self-compassion tools. There are other tools. That's just one that I have seen work wonders for me and work wonders for my clients. Yeah, I agree. And if you're someone like me too, just simply, you know, when I went through that whole collapse thing, like you have no choice but to be kind to yourself because you cannot... I just could not do it. So it's just, it's a good practice to embark on. And it's shifted how, how I look at exercise and fitness even now and how I look at what my body is able to do. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you so much, Janice. It was so awesome to talk to you and hear your perspective. And this is going to be so valuable for people. So can you tell us where we can find out more about you? Yes. My business name is My Body Couture, which is three words, my, M-Y, body, B-O-D-Y, Couture, C-O-U-T-U-R-E. I have a bricks and mortar business in Calgary. So if you are in Alberta, you can come see me in person. If you are not, I do sessions on Zoom throughout the world. You can go to my website, learn a little bit more about me, and that opens the portal to everywhere else on the web that I am. Or you can go straight to either Facebook or Instagram same business name and you can follow my accounts or just send me a message and I'm happy to answer questions, connect with people, do a little consult to see if we're a great fit to work together. But basically anything that relates to wanting to feel better in your body and just needing a bit of guidance to get there. I would love to help you out. Beautiful. Well, we'll link all that up in the show notes. So thank you so much. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks for having me. All right, beautiful people, thank you so much for listening today. If you feel so inclined, please subscribe, rate, and review this show. For show notes and more information on essential oils, please visit livelovelemon.com forward slash podcast. And we love to know what you're up to and how you're using your essential oils. So head over to Instagram and find us at the Aromatherapist Podcast. My name is Cheryl Witten, and I am your aromatherapist. We have to share with you this obligatory disclaimer. Information in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical advice or for professional aromatherapy consultation. If you need medical care, please visit your physician. Speak to your primary care provider, pharmacist, and a qualified aromatherapist before commencing any programs.